Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 212, and today's guest is Ed Boyajan, president and CEO of EDB. Much like cloud computing, open source technologies have changed the game. When I think about it, it's unlikely that VentureFizz would exist if it wasn't for open source software. There's no way I could have gotten it off the ground if I had to purchase an expensive content management system. Well, it took many years for open source to become commonplace, and especially to the point where you could build a successful tech company around an open source project. Ed has been involved in the open source technology industry for 20 years, so he's witnessed firsthand how things have evolved and how open source has really propelled technology forward, which we discuss in detail. He's currently leading EDB, which provides products, services, and support to over 5,000 customers who are using Postgres, an open source database. The company is headquartered in Bedford, Massachusetts, and has 16 offices worldwide. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Ed's background studying business at Boston University on an ROTC scholarship, and how his experience in the Army helped him as a leader, how he got into the tech industry and the rapid growth years at Red Hat, all the details on EDB, including their record growth from last year and what the culture is like working there, advice on building out pricing and go-to-market models in the tech industry, when is the right time to bring in a chief revenue officer, and how the position is different from a VP of sales, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that the VentureFizz job board hit a major milestone this past week? We now have over 5,000 jobs listed on our job board, which is amazing, and it just shows the resiliency of the tech industry over the past year. So what does this mean for you? It means great things for your career, as there are lots and lots of career-defining opportunities to help take your career to the next level. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to start searching. Oh, and if you are not looking for a new opportunity, I bet you know some friends and colleagues who are, so please share our job board with others. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ed. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Keith. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because obviously you've done a lot throughout your career. EDB is growing at you know extraordinary levels. So we're going to talk about all, all the great things happening there. But to kick things off, I thought it'd be good to talk about, you know, you've got such a deep history of experience in the open source software industry. And, um, you know, when I think of open source and what that has meant for technology, it's, you know, you look at what the cloud has done and what that's meant for startups. And you think about open source, it's kind of the same where I don't know if VentureFizz would exist without open source. We're built on Drupal. And if I had to go purchase, you know, a major content management software application from one of the leading vendors, it would never would have gotten off, you know, started. So, so what is open source meant in terms of, you know, pushing industries and technology forward? Yeah, you know, Keith, thanks, thanks uh, for having me and I appreciate the nature of the question. I, as you know, I've been in open source now for, I think this is actually my 20th year. Wow. I, I started uh, in open source back in uh, 2001 uh, with a company, Ars Digita, that uh, ultimately was acquired by Red Hat. And if you look back then, open source wasn't wasn't quite the popular phenomenon it is. It certainly wasn't yet a commercial success, even though Red Hat, you know, at that time had IPO'd. People really didn't understand the nature of open source development and the benefits and value it brought. Uh, it could bring to 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 industry and to technology. But you know, in, in being able to reflect on that twenty years later and having looked at it 
from the inside out, first with Red Hat and through Linux, and now with Postgres, both interestingly similar projects uh, in that they're independent open source. The, the, the transformation that's taken place in the proliferation of technology couldn't have happened without the availability of open source technologies, which are, you know, can naturally proliferate. And I think, you know, I think there's two sides to that. I think one inherently, you know, those of us who've looked closely at open source tech see that we can develop better technologies faster if we do it in an open context. I mean, just the nature of the vast number of contributors around the globe uh, participating in the projects and the idea of peer review inevitably leads to better tech delivered faster. And I think companies like EDB and certainly Red Hat as examples of companies that can commercialize that in a meaningful way so that enterprises can really take advantage of those um, of those technical advancements in, in, in the way they're familiar with in dealing with enterprise um, software vendors. Yeah, no, it's been such a critical element of really where things exist today. And it just, it's, it's been an exciting time to watch it evolve. You know, I, I remember from the early days uh, when Red Hat went public. So, but, uh, well, let's, let's rewind the clock. So let's talk about your background. Like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? <laughs> so I, I grew up in, uh, in Newton, Mass, just a little uh, a town, sub Western suburb of, of Boston. And uh, I was, you know, I was probably a quiet and shy kid, I think, for most of my youth. Uh, and when I got to high school, that started to change. I kind of came out of my shell. And I, I remember a very distinct moment that that seemed to happen. I think I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, I went to visit with my guidance counselor. And, and, and he told me what my class rank was. I had no concept of class rank. And I don't know where I was, but it was a class of 850 odd kids. And uh, I was not, you know, I was in the top maybe quarter. Uh, and I, it occurred to me, like, I, I got to do better than that. And mm -hmm. it was a really defining moment. I remember it to this day. And from that point on, I think I got straight A's or whatever. I, you know, I, at least I tried right. to get straight A's. I cared about it. And uh, even, even, even knowing by the end of my sophomore year, I couldn't get myself up in the class rank very far, but I, I did move along. And, uh, but during that time, I also kind of came out of my shell. And uh, I, I um, you know, I participated in a lot of other activities in, in high school as well. Well, from what I gather, then you, you studied business at, at Boston University, but then you enlisted in the Army, right? I did, yeah. And I actually went to Boston University on an Army ROTC scholarship. So Got it. Okay, now I, I I went to college knowing that and making a commitment to going to the Army afterwards. And that wasn't a big shock to me because my father had uh, many obvious years before uh, volunteered to be uh, volunteered to serve in Korea during the Korean War, and he uh, ultimately retired a colonel through the Army Reserve. So my whole life, I grew up uh, with kind of military service as you know being seen as something really, really important and valuable. And uh, and he himself was the was the son of Armenian immigrants. So um, he you know he was actually afforded an opportunity not to have to go into the military, but he wanted to. And so uh, I, um, I had a great appreciation for that, that service. And so when I went to BU, you know, I knew full well that, you know, I was, I was um, committing um, longer term to a, a service. Well, and, thank you for your service. You. And during that time, so I, so you, you actually, you know, trained as an airborne ranger. So I'm like, Oh, here we go. Special ops. So, uh, so do you have like a favorite story you like to tell from that experience of, you know, just being, you know, in the, in, in the military in general or, 
Well, let me, like a couple of things that are interesting about that. So what led me down that path ultimately, in which case I did all of those things while I was still in college. I actually went to, you know, airborne school, ranger school, all those kind of gung-ho army schools I did when I was in college, which was unusual then. Mm. Uh, and so I hadn't yet got my commission as an officer, but um, the lesson I learned that I mentioned earlier in high school, like pay attention and, you know, get, get in front of this, of your trajectory early. I, I did that consciously when I got to BU as a, as a young, you know, as a young uh, co college student. And so uh, that was a really important uh, foundation for me to kind of get off to a good start. But I will say this, one of the things I learned and I probably learned it most decisively at Ranger School is that, you know, th those are incredibly um, demanding schools, you know, most people wash out. And, uh, and, and one of the things that, you, you know, the stresses and pressures you're put under teach you a lot about yourself. And the idea that we really think what we have a notion of what our limits are, it, it pushed that so far beyond any concept of limitations I thought I had, both physically, mentally. And I, and I remember this, 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 this moment where I realized that under duress and, and, and when pressured in that context, I, you, you're tired, you're hungry, um, and, and, you know, you're stressed working around the clock in, in simulated missions. And I remember thinking the only, I was thinking as far ahead as my next step when mm -hmm. I had a 60 pound backpack on my back, you know, uh, and I was walking up a mountain thinking the only thing I need to do is make one more step. And that was a, it really was a revelation for me personally, that when things get really hard, your capacity is bigger than you think, just make another step. And I've applied that relentlessly through a uh, oftentimes uh, demanding and challenging career. I was gonna say, so as CEO of tech companies, that's challenging. So what do you think you learned from that military experience that has transferred over to what you do now? Yeah, you know, I think first and foremost, the critical nature and importance of leadership uh, in building teams and achieving outcomes. We, we spent time in the military, we studied leadership, we practiced leadership, we critiqued our, our leadership, and uh, there's not a lot of opportunities to do that in business. And, I, uh, and, and it was, uh, I think, a great stepping off point, but, but again, importance of leadership. I think the second was the, um, the essential role of teamwork in achieving, you know, what are seemingly impossible goals and outcomes, and how much uh, coming together as a team is is uh, is such so powerful in getting to results, and I think the last is the value of diversity uh, of people, of experiences, of backgrounds, uh, and of ethnicities in accomplishing more together. I was a young. I volunteered to be a platoon leader in Korea. That was another one. Go for it. Go go all the way in back in the in the uh, mid '80s, and I had a platoon that was half American and half Korean soldiers. And uh, I was a young guy, I was only 22, but those were really, when, when, you, when you learned how to harness that kind of differences, which wasn't always easy, you know, people didn't get along and didn't necessarily appreciate or respect each other's cultures. But when you got through that, uh, incredibly powerful possibilities. Yeah, such great foundational experience. So, so what did you do after? So I, I, uh, I get I, in the, in my go for it mode, I, I applied to two, I was coming out of the army. I thought I, I want to go into business. I really wanted to get into entrepreneur and entrepreneur endeavors. 
Uh, I applied to two schools. I got into one. I got into Harvard. Yes. Okay. I was living at the time in Virginia. I applied to the University of Virginia. I didn't get in there. I got into Harvard. Like, okay, this is where I'm going to go. Wow. So, okay. Uh, I was happy to be accepted there, and uh, and that was really a jumping off point for me. I did not have business experience in that in real in, in real context. I had a lot of leadership experience through the military, uh, and so that was a that was a great stepping off point for me. I had a lot to learn obviously, um, but uh, but a great environment to do that in. And what did you do coming out of B school? Uh, so it's interesting. When I came out of business school, I, I definitely followed a path less traveled. I had studied uh, some of the entrepreneurial studies. And I imagine that was between 88 and 90. So that wasn't as popular back then. That was kind of new to mm -hmm. Harvard. It's much more prominent today. But then it was just emerging. Uh, most people left there and went into investment banking or management consulting. Typically, I mean, there were other industries, but that was very common. Uh, and I, I came out of school. I took my last final from, I remember it was 2 to 6 p.m. one night. And I literally started the next day before I'd even graduated as a street sales guy in sales training for a no-tech company. So I volunteered to be a street sales guy in a small company that was uh, a little more entrepreneurial thinking that you know i needed to build my career from from the ground up and i wanted to learn the, the way of selling and i felt like that could be the way i differentiate myself so wow what a methodical like each step like you know you figured out in high school and then you took it to the next level by going into the military and then hbs and everything had a methodical direction of where like street sales if you can succeed in that you know you're pretty much setting yourself up to succeed in all different types of sales. I just remember when I graduated from college, uh, a couple of my friends were doing the cold knocking on doors, selling printers. And yeah. like, if you can do that, you know, long distance telephone service back in the day, and it, you know, they would get screamed at, get out of, you know, like, but if you <laughs> were successful, they're very successful today. Well, you, know? It, you know, it suited my nature and personality. Well, plus it, it really is truly a great way to learn about a business and to learn about what drives um, you know, what can drive a company? I mean, if you can't understand markets and customers, uh, then it's really hard to figure out how to build direction and strategy and, and align a business to the outcomes. I mean, I don't think I knew all, all of that <laughs> then. <laughs> I figured that out over time, mm -hmm. but that certainly proved to be a great building block for me. And there were days as, as I was, you know, growing through those roles and, you know, I, I had, a, had, navigated that with the then CEO of that CEO of that company that, you know, if I did well to help keep moving me along. And he was true to that. So I became, I went from a sales person to a marketing manager, then a marketing manager back to a regional sales guy where I actually had to sell all the, all the things I created as a marketing manager. <laughs> Let me tell you, you know, you know, your own BS when you have to sell your, the, the, the stuff that you built. Um, and uh, and so that was really a, an interesting progression for me personally, but but incredibly important in developing a concept concept and understanding of how mark you know how to market and how to think about targets and 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 build a business around uh, you know go to market and selling. So so how did you get into the the tech industry? I made a hard career change. It was I think back then it was probably ninety seven or ninety eight, and I remember watching. I was in a no tech company, and I while I was moving along, I was seeing all that was happening in the internet, and I you know I looked at that and I thought you know I can't I, I have to I have to adjust this this is great I'm in a no tech business but uh, was comfortable but just just 
couldn't get to where I felt I should go. And so I made a wholesale career change. Fortunately, uh, you know, some of the entrepreneurial guys I knew from the Harvard days, I stayed connected with, they helped introduce me into the tech world. And I, um, I got in as a, you know, head of sales in a, in an internet, was a consulting and system integration firm in the internet space. And, uh, okay. So it was competing against like the razor fishes and Viant science of the world back. In yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think CTP was a big company in yep, that space yep. back then. Yep. Uh, Cambridge technology partners. Yep. iCube before it was acquired by Razorfish. Exactly. Yep. And yep. so I, I came in there as the head of sales and that was, and it was the, you know, dramatic change. Uh, I didn't know that category. I certainly didn't know the technology of the industry, but, uh, but again, you know, it was do you know, the change, you know, was important to me and, 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 but it was hard. And so I was able to draw on so many of those lessons I'd learned earlier, but it's okay. If it's hard, you can figure it out. And that company was acquired by ServiceSoft, which was like a, like a CRM. It was. Yeah. Yeah. One of the early days of the kind of CRM, uh, you know, back then they weren't SaaS, SaaS platforms. All right. So then what, what happened next through, through your career? So I, you know, that company got, that company changed hands a couple of times. And, uh, and then I, I left that to go to another, another startup. Uh, I got, you know, into an early uh, wireless technology company uh, that was called Skyfire Technologies. It was doing, you know, kind of, it was a little ahead of its time to wireless terminal server kind of, kind of tech to allow you to render rich graphics on mobile devices, but with very little data going over the airways. So today that seems, you know, almost ludicrous, but then that was pretty cool tech. Unfortunately, you know, that just never got the lift it needed. And so we actually had to shut that business down. Uh, I remember, I remember when we had to, you know, let people go and lay people off, including I laid myself off. So uh, that didn't last long. I, I transitioned into another company that, uh, that ultimately was bought by Red Hat. Yeah. So that was Ars Digita. So what did Ars Digita do? Was that Services. Ars Digital was a was was a content and collaboration management software platform. That was my that was my first entry into open source. So that was uh -huh. in, you know based on open source uh, platform and uh, you know company that had that kind of you know was a, in, in its day got a lot of a lot of dough VC dough as many companies did then and uh, but you know also couldn't quite convert all of that. So uh, we sold that company to Red Hat. I had not been there very long. And we got to Red Hat. Red Hat. This was now the po post bubble bust. So Red Hat, you know, w was not a known company. I don't know. It was probably fifty, sixty million dollar company back then. I mean, Linux was not was emerging. People were aware of it. Open source again wasn't prominent. Um, and I came in, and they, you know, recognized I had some selling skills, so they asked me to stick around and run parts of the sales organization. And that really grew, you know, grew and developed into my running. Uh, the North America business for Red Hat up until I left, and uh, and and in reality, really, it was probably the most meaningful growth, career growth I had at that point. You know, if you, if I got there and you asked me, "Gee, could you run a company?" I would have been sure. I would have said, "Surely, yes, I can run a company." It would have been catastrophically wrong. Right. <laughs> uh, those, those years of learning were really powerful. Uh, is we had to kind of define new way. You know, there we were defining. We were evangelizing Linux, a subscription model, the the GPL and open source licenses, so many things that were not in any way common to enterprise users or buyers. Yeah, because I mean, that was, you know, Greenfield, like I remember when the company went public and the stock skyrocketed and everyone's like, what, what is this open source? It was almost like how like 
cryptocurrency is now where people are like, they kind of know what it is, but they don't know what it is. And it's just like, things are skyrocketing and you're on the sidelines. You're like, what, what is, so I just remember Red Hat going public and I was like, oh, geez, should I buy shares? And then you know, obviously things change with the dot-com bubble burst thing and text shares coming back down. But uh, Red Hat was one of these companies that charted the way for the open source, like the commercialization of what we see today with companies like Acquia and so many others that have built anchor companies around an open source development project. Yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, it, it's very interesting to me now that I'm, you know, kind of uh, in my in, in, in kind of my next endeavor post Red Hat, which I've been in now, it's the longest I've been in any one place. I'm 12 years in the company coming up to 13 this spring. And, uh, and to have been part of both, you know, the, the Red Hat phenomenon and now the Postgres phenomenon and have seen how other open source projects have developed and materialized both from an open source project perspective, but also from a business and company perspective has been really interesting. And one of the, one of the, one of the things that is, is I think many people wouldn't recognize is the difference between truly independent open source projects like Linux and Postgres which are not controlled by a company. In fact, they're, they're managed quite independently. There are prominent companies like Red Hat and EDB is to Postgres, um, but, but the power in those projects is the fact that they're independent of a single company control and contrast that with some more prominent ones that we hear about today um, that where the open source project is captive to the company. MongoDB is a great example of that. That, that, in, that, that's not an independent open source project. That's a project that's managed by a company. And so in that context, the nature, you know, the kind of commercialization of those technologies and the, um, the way, you know, people and companies um, intersect those projects looks really different. And the nature of lock-in is really different. Well, let's you know, kind of bring everyone up to speed. So, so EDB, so what, like what's the founding story of the company and at what point did you join and what, why did you decide to join the company? Yeah, so the company was founded in 2004, and the original technical thesis was, was centered on the idea that the database market was incredibly um, uh, uh, powerful and, and, and that companies were typically locked into their database vendor, that, that what had evolved was such an interdependency between the application and the database, mostly through the, you know, the, the, the query language, the SQL query language standard that every company had kind of made their own derivative of that that locked databases uh, to applications. And the thesis was if you could unlock that, if you could make an application in particular, in this case, written to run on Oracle, run on another database, in our case, Postgres, without changing the application, that that would be a powerful value proposition. And that's the tech that the company founded itself on. It was known initially more for that compatibility capability than for Postgres. And when I joined the company, uh, I set out to change that, I, to change that pers perspective to the extent that, uh, you know, I felt that we had to be a database technology company, a Postgres database technology company first, that compatibility as a feature could be quite valuable and important, but it was a feature. And that before anything, we had to be able to solve the biggest, gnarliest, hardest problems in the database that any enterprise customer would need. In that, in that context, be able to support the most demanding users for their Postgres requirements. And when did you start to see the shift of, you know, the, you know, the uh, IT functions and major companies say, hey, no longer am I buying a major license with Oracle to, hey, Postgres is the better, better option. 
So that we've certainly seen, that's been a, what I'd call a slow build from, you know, the beginning of time. I mean, early on, we had so many companies that were looking to solve that particular problem, their, their dependency on Oracle and some of the, the expense that came with that and the, you know, that they were looking to Postgres. Um, but I would say it's probably been in the past five years that the in, basically two things were happening simultaneously. This demand and need for change and transformation was growing and accelerating. Um, and and post, we were making Postgres consistently better every single year. So our focus on Postgres, while we aren't, um, we aren't the, we are the biggest contributor to Postgres if you measure everyone. We I think in the last release about twenty seven percent of the contributions came from EDB or contributors came from EDB, and you know which means the majority is an EDB. But that's a big contribution to that project. But because we were focused on building the tech and we had enterprise customers, we were able to accelerate development. So all of those came together in making Postgres better year over year. And that started to intersect this, this, this overwhelming need to get away from proprietary database, notably Oracle, and a phenomenon that we experienced at Red Hat, which was a, a, essentially a replatforming phenomenon, that the, the movement towards more utility-like computing, which include, obviously includes cloud, but I don't think of it as just public cloud. It's utility in any context, utility on-prem uh, as well as public. And that's how I think people have begun to even accelerate faster in the past three years. Where's EDB today as far as, you know, the different, you know, you guys do a lot, but if you had to like summarize kind of the business and what you guys, you know, deliver to customers. Yeah, so we are... We're the preeminent provider of solutions and technologies that surround Postgres to enterprise customers around the world. Uh, we service co companies globally. Uh, half of our business today comes from uh, inside the North America market and half from outside. So this is kind of truly a global, a global pattern of demand and need. We serve those customers by offering them uh, a, pro a, a, pro a set of products, including the database server, and we offer a couple of versions of the database server, our advanced server, which has the compatibility technology in it, and a community server, which doesn't. Uh, and, then, and then we surround that with a set of tools that allow our customers to deploy Postgres in any environment at scale. So that includes things for replication, uh, backup, recovery, uh, all the tools for enterprise management. So a whole host of, you know, any company that deploys a database needs to be able to deploy it in complex global uh, deployments and we offer the, the tools. And so we build a lot of those tools around, around the Postgres database and offer those to our customers today. Now EDB has been in hyper growth mode, right? So there's uh, acquisition that you guys recently made for a second quadrant, uh, record growth in 2020. So just talk about the company and, and where you guys are at and, and kind of the future outlook. Yeah, so you can imagine that as Postgres has become more prominent and important, which we've been as responsible for, not just a beneficiary of, we, we see our role as, in, as an advocate, as, but as Postgres has become more and more prominent in the market, uh, our business has grown right alongside that. The, um, you know, if you look a little bit closer in, the, you know, the, I think today 25, you know, between 25 and 30% of the Fortune 500 are using Postgres, that we, the Postgres from EDB. Uh, and that you know has a really powerful foundation. A lot of companies now that are um, that are using Postgres are expanding that footprint. Uh, most of our new growth comes from existing customers doing more with Postgres. 
So uh, a little over half of that of our growth comes from the install base expanding. Uh, and then the remainder comes from new, new customers who are taking up Postgres for the first time. So that's been, you know, quite what's, what's really intriguing to me, Keith, is the, the diverse nature of, of demand for the technology. But probably what's maybe more notable is the degree to which the companies in the global 2000 and Fortune 500 are accelerating their deployment and adoption of Postgres to solve larger scale, uh, wider reaching problems than they ever have before. Well, it just sounds like it's such an exciting opportunity because you gave a, a percentage number that is like, wow, that's impressive. Yet there's still so much to tackle. Like there's still so much growth left to, to, to hopefully see in, in the company's life cycle. It's really true, Keith. You know, if you look at the data, I mean, the database market measured by, you know, we hear numbers and, and you know, certainly 40 billion is a number that gets kicked around a lot. I think it's even bigger than that now. We see, we see um, you know, incredible acceleration of growth. Uh, across all deployments and in, in particular in cloud and Postgres is becomes a part of that that transformation agenda just like we saw with Linux remember the Linux phenomenon this was the lesson learned in Linux that the replatforming from Unix based architectures to x86 was really the on-ramp for Linux that Linux you know fit that that model quite well and in that platform shift it was an opportunity to revisit the infrastructure software that was running on those platforms. The same exact phenomenon is happening now within the database market. As our customers are revisiting their platform choices, moving more towards uh, utility deployments, they're evaluating the change in the database. And Postgres is widely viewed today as the de facto standard for their general purpose database. Now, 2020 was an insane year. We're you know going through a pandemic, yet, EDB had incredible growth, like 59% increase in annual recurring revenue, 117% net customer expansion. So just impressive numbers. So um, the, the pandemic had a just, you know, this major shift in how people worked, right? And, you know, remote became the standard. How was EDB's business, you know, how did it translate to what was happening in the world? Yeah, good. So it's, it's really interesting uh, as you might, recall Boston in particular, where we're headquartered outside of Boston in Bedford, Mass, we hit the pandemic early, relatively early. I think there was an outbreak here. So we were very fast to get everybody into remote. In fact, we're just about on the one year anniversary within a few days of when we sent everybody remote. It was it, And we made a conscious choice to, to stay in front of that. But the foundation of that choice was really centered on uh, on, on the idea that we were just going to make sure everyone stayed, the whole team stayed safe, and healthy that became the really my personal rally cry, the rally cry for all of that. And obviously right alongside that, we had to say we have to serve our needs of our customers like we always have. So we were, you know, we were juggling those two things. But in doing that, I think the clear-mindedness of that for all of us helped prioritize things fast. And so we got people into remote. Now remember, I said we've got a we're a global company. More than half of our people aren't here in the United States. So we have, you know, uh, I, I want to say approaching, probably approaching 300 people in India. We have people in 27 different countries. And we were quick to get everybody set up into a physical environment, wherever they were, that they could be as productive as possible. So it meant that, you know, in other parts of the world, we have great connectivity here, but in some parts of the world, there's the connectivity is not great. So we got where there wasn't good connectivity. We got people set up with, you know, with, with uh, cellular Wi-Fi, 
We got people desks, chair, everybody had a stipend for desks, chairs, monitors, so they could do their work remotely. And we did that pretty quick. Uh, so that was setting the infrastructure up. And then we we really took to worrying about the well-being of the staff, recognizing that a lot of people were working in a context they had not worked in before. You know, for people like me, I've traveled most of my career and as a sales person worked remotely often. So I've developed a lot of muscle tone to do that effectively when I'm in my house and my kids are screaming and they're, you know, the requisite demands. But a lot of people hadn't experienced that. So we, we really paid a lot of mind to trying to help people deal with those complex issues. How many employees does EDB have and, and what are your plans as far as, as hiring and which functional areas? So we're, you know, I think we're sitting around 530, I'm be off by a few 530 odd people in the company today. Uh, that we're accelerating growth in, in most functional areas, but heavily in engineering, uh, where we're investing even more significantly, not only in the database server development, but also the adjacencies, uh, areas of replication, where uh, we're seeing more and more customers ask for uh, um, capabilities from us, and then also in cloud. So. A uh, big acceleration in all those investments, and then, not surprisingly, in sales, where you know we've got a an increasing, uh, increasing market demand, and uh, and our existing customers just wanting more from us. That was the thesis for a lot of the acquisition of Second Quadrant. You know, they're an incredible company with with deep talent in Postgres and the technical side, uh, and and so that was entirely about um, bringing as much talent into the company as we could to help you know pursue this this growth challenge. Now, what's it like working there? Like, what's the culture like at EDB? It's a good question. You know, this is a tricky question for me because I'm always careful to, to want to answer that as, as my colleagues would answer it, not as I, you know, hope it would be. But, but I, I would say uh, I think it's a very, uh, very results-oriented company. I think not, you know, not surprisingly, I think, it, you know, anytime you're in software tech, it kind of has to be that way. But uh, I'm also a bit of a numbers person, so I think that that, that kind of permeates the culture of the company, uh, and and I think the results kind of uh, show that. I think I, I would also say it's um, I think it's a collaborative company. I think people would say that there's a there, that there's a real drive to team and to collaborate, and it's not perfect, but people work hard at that. Uh, I and I think um, I think we you know we're. You know, to, to describe, I'm not sure how to characterize the you know prioritization of employees and their development and their you know their um, engagement with the company is a, is another thing that's, that that we've made quite important uh, over over time. So building a startup is really hard, especially when you're potentially taking on incumbents that are the giants, right? Yet giants happen because they were startups. You know, Facebook didn't invent the social network. Google didn't invent the search bar. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're like looking, you have an innovative idea yet, you're going to end up competing against Amazon or somebody, right? What advice would you give to founders on, you know, that potential going up against, you know, David and Goliath scenario? Yeah, I think, look, I think that, you know, for, first, obviously, you have to, you know, you have to know what you're truly best at. And, and I think that, you know, in some ways sounds so simple, but I think it's easy to get distracted. I'll use a, a real life example. I mean, in, the, in my trajectory in this company, there were so many opportunities to diverge away from Postgres into tangential areas. Uh, certainly, you know, we've saw the NoSQL, the new SQL phenomenons come up. We've certainly seen a lot of development of of um, 
of other technologies that support cloud. So we've stayed true to that. And I think knowing what you're good at and staying true to that is, is a critical, uh, a critical part of, of building a company. I think the other is you have to have a good handle on markets and targets. Uh, it, you know, you, you know who you are going to serve best and do that best. Um, and then I think the third thing I would say is now that I can say this, having been in this company for, for 12 years, which is, I guess, in some ways people point out to me, seems a little atypical or unusual. Um, but I think, in, and I've had three different boards since I've been in this company. Uh, and, and, and I, and I, and I, and I note that because as, as I've gotten through the, that trajectory, there are two kinds of challenges in a company. And I think, I think of myself as a builder. And one of the things, one of the great attributes of EDB is it's, it's, it is a proven durable company. That means we can perform in, 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 you know, when things are going well, and we can perform when things aren't going so well in, in the company or around the company. We see that in COVID, but if you're building something durable, you have to recognize there are two kinds of challenges. There are what's much very common in our world, the sprint challenges that are got to make a lot happen in a short amount of time. And I think there's a bias and tendency there, but there is an equally important endurance challenge that is part of building a durable company. And those are hard to see because you invest in those over much longer periods of time. And I can say that with the benefit of hindsight 12 years later that getting good at doing both really matters in building a durable business. Yeah, no, that's so true. And the other thing that's tricky for founders, especially in the earlier days, like once you kind of find your groove, you start to scale and there's different challenges once you're scaling, but when you're first starting out, like how do you, what's the best advice you can give on figuring out pricing and like, you know, go to market early sales strategy. So I think that nothing, and I learned this by being a seller, nothing replaces getting in front of customers and actually doing the, tr the trading with customers sell. You know, you can't learn any other way and you can, we can, you, you can turn all of these into academic exercises. And, and honestly, those academic exercises are helpful as a starting point, but you gotta, you gotta get in front of customers and engage them with your value proposition and take the body blows. You know, we as sellers, we're comfortable there. A lot of people aren't, which means, you know, you put your position out and you're subject to scrutiny and criticism and failure. And it, it, as growing up in sales, you kind of get used to that you get too uh, comfortable in that trade. A lot of people aren't. So I'd ask, I'd encourage founders, early, um, you know, or, or early leaders to invest in that and don't, don't be afraid of taking the body blows in the market to learn what customers really want and value. Yeah. And then once you uh, are scaling and you start to build a, you know, a, a company that's, you know, building critical mass, when is the right time to bring on a, a chief revenue officer? And like, how does that position differ from a VP of sales? So I think, you know, in the, I would say that there's a, there's a turning point as you develop a command of the, 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 the value chain in selling such that you actually, you have a notion of what the inputs and outputs are. And so, you know, you know that if you invest a certain amount in funnel development from a marketing perspective, how many leads that creates and how that can, can, those leads can convert into landings and those convert into expansions. When you get a bit, I mean, through that phase, I think a VP of sales who's really focused on doing deals and transactions and can, you know, can kind of meet the customer 
in, at the deal and build a team of people who can do deals. I think that's that's that stage you need that. But but as you progress, it becomes so much more important to be tuned in to what the efficiency of your your, your sales model looks like. How are you converting investments in sales and marketing into into outcome and whether that's recurring revenue or any kind of revenue. At that point, you know, there's much more strategy involved in thinking about how to layer a sales organization such that you're investing appropriately at the various stages. For example, you don't want to take the highest end, most expensive, most strategic sellers and have them cold calling customers, right? You don't want to do those things. This is kind of the obvious example. But as you start to transition to the importance of stratifying the roles in your sales organization, it really starts to help to have a CRO who can think about those, you know, the strategic elements and how, because at the end of the day, that's in a game of investments. Where do you put most of those dollars? How do you split those dollars? Even for EDV now, as, as far forward as we've come, that's a constant source of of debate amongst us. Where Where is the right level of investments to energize growth in the business? Now, the Boston tech scene has been uh, really like a, a robust area for open source. I mean, it's just been fascinating to watch. I mean, obviously EDB, Acquia, I think Alfresco is, they moved their headquarters here. And then you had, you know, Black Duck and, you know, other like companies that were commercial, you know, helping out with the commercialization. Um, so there's all these companies like, why do you think Boston has been such a rich area for building an open source company? I think first and foremost, I mean, this is just a remarkable area for technical thought leadership that come, that radiates out of the, the the colleges and universities around us. Uh, you know, the 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 I think the the technical um, curriculum we see at so many schools here is fantastic, uh, and and I think you get by nature you get a lot of really talented people coming out of that environment and and into industry locally. I mean, we lose a lot of them to the like like the awesomely perfect microclimate of the peninsula. And, you know, hopefully that's changing, but, uh, but we keep some of them here. And I think that's really, you know, that's been the source of, of uh, talent and capability in the, in the local, you know, the local open source and tech scene. And I, you know, I'm a huge believer in that. I, I, I will admit openly that I, you know, I kind of want to keep proving the point that you can build a great tech company out of Boston, that every one of them doesn't have to have a, have a, um, you know, have a Bay Area address to be to be a great company. So true. Now, there's a ton going on in the on the East Coast. I mean, between Boston and New York, I mean, there's just a ton going on. So, um, all right, what are three apps you can't live without? Three apps. Um, all right, I'm going to name four. I'm going to name four, Keith. Just let me do four because I'm going to I'm going to put. So obviously, we're working. We, we're talking here on Zoom. Uh, we use like for regular communication, Zoom and Slack uh, that's become indispensable to all of us, particularly in the world of COVID, where all of our relationships have become two dimensional. Uh, so those two. Uh, another one that I depend heavily on is Clary, a great SaaS app that is uh, a plug or an I guess attached to Salesforce, which really creates a nice layer of abstraction for forecasting and monitoring of deals in the business, really terrific. And then most recently, uh, where we've implemented uh, uh, OKRs, objectives, and key results, we've been a, a huge fan of of the Workboard application, which is a plat an SaaS platform for managing uh, OKRs across the company. Got it. Okay, yeah, those are some new ones I haven't heard about. So that's. that's 
Good stuff. What about uh, books or podcast recommendations that you'd have out there other than the Venture Fist podcast, of course? Of course. Um, I would, I, you know, so because we've just waded into uh, OKRs, I would absolutely recommend to anyone of your listeners, they should read Measure What Matters. Great book by uh, John Doerr, who's, you know, quite a uh, prominent and uh, obviously incredibly successful venture capitalist, I think from uh, uh, Kleiner Perkins. Uh, really, really excellent book. You know, it's uh, the focus on uh, outcomes more so than output. And I think that's really been uh, helpful to me as I think about what's ahead for EDP. What do you like to do uh, outside of work? Obviously, you're busy building a, an anchor tech company, but uh, what do you like to do outside when you have free time? Oh, you know, I've got uh, two younger boys. So getting out, out uh, you know, on hikes out in the woods, always fun. Uh, we, uh, we're here at, at home building out up. My wife is leading us in the development of our homestead here on a small <laughs> property in Concord, Mass. And so, uh, I'm actually like a, you know, occasional gentleman farmer. Uh, oh, okay. More, <laughs> and I emphasis on occasional. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's good stuff though. It's good. Like that's a little, I've been seeing a little bit of a trend towards that. A couple, a couple of my friends did something similar. So. I think that would be my wife's goal too. She would love to have, you know, a property with acres and acres of land to do something similar, like a little bit of farming. But I'm like, I, uh, I don't know if that's me. I know, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I've become expert in smoking meat. These are the, you know, my contributions. <laughs> I'm my next endeavor yeah. is to learn how to distill things. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's, that's more <laughs> you're speaking my language. That's more along the lines of things I'd want to know. So, well, Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background, all the great things happening at EDB. And of course, all the you know great advice. Great. Thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.